When it comes to mob leadership, the boss does well to hide his activities in a cloak of secrecy. Keeping above the fray of murder and violence, he does well to buffer himself to establish a facade of legitimacy. The one Philadelphia boss had no intention of following conventional behavioral norms. He relished the spotlight and reveled in his reputation for violence and intimidation. He answered the age-old debate of being feared or loved with public demonstrations of psychotic disloyalty, a method of leadership that spelled chaos and calamity in a once peaceful era, a method that would ultimately and predictably become his downfall. This is the legend of Nicodemo Domenico Scarfo. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. We're going to have to close up shop without Gunner. Well, we're not going to close up shop, but uh, we're not, we're not going to go completely without Gunner either. Uh, I listened to his first show. It was pretty good. They're having to do a production. Like he's in his house, the producer's somewhere else, the call guy's somewhere else too because of COVID. Right. They're not like in a conventional studio and stuff. Yeah. So typical Gunner, man, as soon as he gets rolling and talking, the, the show just flowed, you know, and it was it was cool. So uh, yeah. I didn't I didn't catch it last night because I was working on the script, but uh, I'm gonna go back and listen and everything. But uh, just from what I heard the first time, no doubt in my mind he's gonna succeed at this, like. Uh, like everything else he's doing. Nice. Yes. Good for him. And I would like to get back to uh, more Detroit stuff. It's interesting because how long was I focused on the Detroit mob? You know, months? Months, yeah. Yeah. And I kind of assessed like what I know about it and it's not much. <laughs> I'm like, man, I, I feel like I'm still just as confused as I was, you know, four weeks ago, you know, just about the leadership and the way it goes. And I see people on Instagram and stuff try to like document it and it's always contested, you know, or like Gunner himself will get on and go, man, that's not at all right. Where the hell did you get that? So anyway, what I like to do is uh, get the uh, Motor City Mafia book from Scott Bernstein, really dig into that before I try to take on anything else with Detroit because it is so secretive. What are we going to do? We're going to talk about the Philly mob. Fortunately, Philly, not so it's secretive. Not. No. <laughs> it's a no, lot no. easier to get information. It seems like there's a lot of guys out there talking and... Uh, <laughs> A lot of leaks. It's interesting, though, how each city runs so differently. But yeah. it's not unlike corporate America, you know? I mean, when people transfer departments or transfer to different states and work, a lot of time it doesn't work out because it's run so differently. Right, and it comes down to leadership and different styles of leadership. Exactly. Uh, I think what Detroit's got going on is more of a, you know, they all call themselves a family, but in Detroit, it's really a family. Yeah. Where the like Tocos dynasty. and the Zarellis are running things. And so it's culturally handed down generationally. It's not like an outside guy just comes in and takes over Detroit. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a dynasty. Right. And, and, you, and it shows because it's a lot tighter, more secure organization. But it makes it easier on us to cover things like this. Yeah. So, uh, Nikki Scarfo, what do you think? Well... We have in the in the script uh, a reference to Mike Tyson, so you know that's not that exactly, can't be good. I got no beef with Tyson. <laughs> exactly, Tyson's the good guy. Yeah, well, maybe Zach does. 
Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's all right. We'll revisit that in Vegas, especially if we bump into Mike Tyson. Well, um, then I'll quickly run away. <laughs> well, I think with Scarfo, it's like when you work for the guy who's insane and nothing you do is going to be right for long. And, you know, we've all had those jobs where you've gotten up and you just don't want to go in because of the insanity. And I have to believe that's what this was like. Yeah, nothing like you guys do in this show where the leadership is sound and uh, completely <laughs> rational all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I didn't even know we had leadership. <laughs> that's how good it's been. Didn't even know it was there. That's my style of leadership. It's like the Pied Piper. You guys don't even know you're following the music. No, we don't. It's a beautiful song you sing. I feel like we're walking into the light. In order to do this story, we have to get through a lot of uh, Philadelphia history because anyone listening to this show, and believe it or not, there's some people that only listen to this show. This is like they didn't even like gangster stories before we started talking to them. So I really wanted to kind of lay a groundwork and not assume that people understand the uh, Philadelphia story. Not the Philadelphia story that's famous by Catherine yeah, Hepburn. I don't know what that is, but and no. It's not it. Oh, you're oh, kidding. Bill. Catherine Hepburn? What do I know about her? I don't like celebrities. Oh. I, don't, I, don't like, oh. I don't like that she's shit. the greatest. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Hey, here's, I'm going to knock you down with this, too. I didn't like her on Golden Pond. I thought that was oh, lame. So. No. Sorry, man. No. All right, I got to go. I'm sorry, Norman. I didn't like the movie. Uh. Yeah, that sounded just like her. <laughs> I'm good with voices. So back to a topical discussion. I wanted to give a little groundwork for the Philly stuff. And I had a lot of help. I had uh, my buddy, uh, Fernando Moreno, is a big Philly fan and stuff. So he was able to point me in some good directions and uh, appreciate the help as always. Shadow. All right, might as well. Let's do it. Cue the music. Now for the Partners in Crime shout out. And here it is. Fernando Moreno, thanks for your help. Not just in this, but always. Thanks, brother. Okay, it sounds like there's a werewolf. Somebody breathing? That's Zach, I think. Yeah. Oh. Come on, Zach. (laughs) Can you turn off the porn for like an hour (laughs) when we do the show? (laughs) It's part of my morning routine. (laughs) I get it, man. That's worth noting. We're doing this show at an unusual time. We're usually doing it late at night. Definitely after my my drinking time. And uh, we're doing this one at six in the morning. Still left your drinking time. So we're more. Uh, <laughs> shut yeah, up, intern. Exactly. I don't know. I thought I saw Joshua pour some fireball in the coffee to keep you awake. That's very possible. That's part <laughs> of his duties. Anyway, partners in crime, back again. Glad to have you with us. I'm Bill Crooks. Nobody to worry about. Just an ordinary guy. Sitting to my right, we've got the narrator extraordinaire, Zach the Zip Griffith. Also just an ordinary guy. And a not ordinary guy, and an extraordinary gal, the enchanting and alluring Anne-Marie Giuliano. Good morning, I don't know how enchanting and alluring I am. Do your best. And at the controls, (laughs) staggering around the Partners in Crime studio, tripping over cords and spilling my coffee. Thank you, Joshua the Intern. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have the coffee. I'm not sure I have much of it left. (laughs) Okay, so we got a lot of Philly stuff to get into. I know uh, people are excited, so am I. So let's get started. Nicodemo Domenico Scarfo Sr. is born on March 8th, 1929 in Brooklyn. He's welcomed into the world by Italian immigrants Philip and Catherine Scarfo, who have come to America from Naples and Calabria, respectively. 
This is the year of the great stock market crash, and the family is rendered virtually penniless. With little means of supporting themselves over the next few years, the Scarfo family ultimately decides to relocate to Philadelphia. Here, they decide to share residence with family until the nation's economy improves. Catherine's brothers, Nicholas Joseph and Michael Piccolo, are made men in the Philadelphia crime family, foreshadowing their nephew's ascent through the organization's ranks. In 1947, at the age of 12, Nicodemo moves to South Philadelphia with his family. Here, he works as a laborer and graduates from Benjamin Franklin High School. Upon graduating, Scarfo enters the workforce, but not by utilizing any labor experience accrued up to this point. Instead, he decides to lace the gloves and jump into the amateur boxing ring. Scarfo initially figures there's no better place for an animal like himself than the inside of a ring. Scarfo's temperament is renowned among those who know him for its volatility and ferocity. Armed with only his boxing gloves, Nicky has a viable platform for beating someone to a bloody pulp. Unfortunately, while Scarfo might imagine himself a Mike Tyson, he's no Tyson. He fails to climb up the ranks of the boxing world. You know, though, even if you're not a top-notch boxer, just having the boxing experience means you could probably kick most people's ass. Yeah, I think Correct. So. And I think there's uh, some anger issues going on here. Yep. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Maybe out of being poor. I, d- I don't know what it would be at this early age, but he did grow up poor in the Depression, and, you know, people are st- struggling for survival in this economy and stuff. It's hard to imagine now because what we think of as a bad economy is nothing compared to the stock market crash. Correct. So it is. He's growing up in desperate times. Right. He's born during uh, the Depression, and he grows up probably during uh, World War II. So. Yeah, where you have to fight for every scrap. Yeah. yeah. Other opportunities present themselves, however, and Scarfo is ultimately enlisted by his uncle, Nicholas Nicky Buck Piccolo, to run a bookmaking operation for the Philly mob. There's a lot of Nickies in this. A lot of Nicks and Nickies. So we're going to try to keep them all straight. Nicky Piccolo is a Philadelphia mobster and a capo in the Philadelphia family underboss Angelo Bruno. According to the Mafia Wiki, for what that's worth, he's known as one of the last gentleman gangsters. Piccolo and his two brothers are all made men in the Philly family. The brothers co-own a mob hangout that's called Piccolo's 500 Restaurant in South Philly. And so Uncle Nicky is apparently the guy who gives Scarfo his first big break in the underworld. And it's a favor that will be returned to him later on in life. At this time, Joseph Ida is the family's leader, overseeing illegal activities in not just Philly, but Atlantic City, South Jersey, and Baltimore. All right, so some things to know about Giuseppe Joseph Ida. He's the head of the Philly mob during the 40s and 50s, following the death of Giuseppe Dovi in 1946. One of his most notable achievements is he drove the Jewish mobsters out of their territory, both in Philly and in South Jersey. Mm, Quite the feat. Mm -hmm. Ida and his crime family are heavily influenced by the five families in New York, especially the Luciano crime family, who are always trying to get their tentacles in other cities' operations. The Philadelphia family gains more power in Atlantic City and Southern Jersey. It's basically regarded as an extension of the Luciano family. It's said that the family is strongly influenced by underboss Vito Genovese, who will eventually rise to the top spot and the Luciano family will bear his name. After a 1956 commission meeting, however, the crime families of Philadelphia and Detroit are added to the commission, establishing the Philadelphia crime family as its own organization independent of control by New York families. 
So Ida is among the unfortunate mob leaders who take part in the legendary Appalachian meeting in November uh, of 1957. What a, what a time. What a time. Right. And that's a meeting we've probably covered as much as we should. Correct. A lot of geniuses at that meeting. Yeah, there was a ton of big names. <laughs> yeah, Castellano was there. Buffalino was there. That's what makes it so unreal that it went down the way it did. <laughs> and like I said, I said we're not going to cover it much more, but uh, it was unprecedented. Nothing, no raid like that had ever happened before. And there had been meetings. Right. You know, it's not unheard of that they had meetings. It's just that they had this meeting in a small town. It was the ill-planned emergency meeting. They threw in a bunch of food and party supplies. And it got noticed and got busted. So, Yep. A couple years after the Appalachian debacle, Ida eventually retires and returns to Italy in 1959, leaving the title of boss of the Philadelphia crime family to Angelo Bruno. I read reports that he was actually fleeing some kind of a drug charge. And he basically said, screw it, I'm out. But anyway, the succession from Ida to Bruno did hit a little speed bump along the way. The top spot was initially assumed by Antonio Polina. Polino had been a top dog in a mafia group known as the Greaser Gang. Oh. And was, was not so shabby at Lone Shark. <laughs> so Angelo Bruno is reportedly okay with Polino taking the reins, by all accounts. But the boss isn't sure about that and allegedly orders his underboss, a man named Ignazio De Nero, to kill Bruno. Just figuring better safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. But Polino ends up sorry anyways when Bruno's tipped off to the plot, right? So he ends up seeking the assistance of one of his old bootlegging friends from New York who's done pretty well for himself. The guy's name's Carlo Gambino. Oh, so yeah. Gambino throws his weight into it and the commission strips Polino of his title and hands it over to Bruno. So Gambino even offers to kill Polino for his rude behavior. But Bruno deems it unnecessary and merely demotes his adversary. So further, just to show what kind of a guy he is, he allows the would-be assassin De Niro to remain an underboss. So with these decrees, Bruno hopes to avoid civil unrest uh, between his loyalists and the loyalists of Polina. Mm. So this is kind of where he gets the uh, kind of a misnamed. He gets like the gentle Don moniker, like uh, we just yes. talked about Gotti having. Right. Right. But. It's really not that earned. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, a gentle guy, you know. None of these but, guys are. Right. So you always, when you hear this stuff, you got to take it with a grain of salt. It just means basically that they'd prefer a nonviolent method. They don't usually don't want to draw media attention. They don't want to draw law enforcement attention. So they're trying to make money is what they're doing, you know, but they, they won't hesitate to kill somebody that gets in their way. Don't, don't ever misread that. So right. instead of gentle, Don, they should call them pragmatic uh, yes that's exactly what i was gonna say Calc- more more calculating than these these instinct first guys smarter right and i think that comes when you have a leader who's more of a racketeer than a gangster per se yeah yeah they have well somebody who has more business sense yeah. yeah meanwhile on the streets nikki scarfo is working hard and being recognized as an earner saddled with the nickname little nikki for his five feet six inch frame Scarfo becomes respected enough to become a made man in the family's Calabrian faction. According to his nephew, Philip Crazy Phil Leonetti, his uncle is inducted into the family by Ida himself in 1954 or 55. It's at the San Suchi restaurant and bar in New Jersey where Scarfo, as well as his cousin Tony Buck Piccolo, and his uncles Michael and Joseph are sworn into the life. So, uh, Little Nicky, as with many mob nicknames, was allegedly never used in front of him. 
They said, uh, I saw one doc that said to use that in front of him was a death sentence. What about uh, Crazy Phil? Crazy Phil? Crazy Phil to his face? Crazy Phil didn't like it. He, uh, I saw Crazy Phil say, like, why, why the hell are they call me that? <laughs> no one but, wants to explain that one. But little Nikki's like, what are you crazy? You can't buy money. Like, you can't buy a nickname that good, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was funny because I didn't really put it together, but little Nikki's going like, I'm freaking little Nikki. <laughs> you want to be little Phil? I'll be crazy, Nikki. But the thing is, we're Italian. Five six is not that short. Well, it's pretty short. I'm six foot. No, you're not. <laughs> really? Really? I'm not six foot? Uh, I mean, like, Aunt Georgia would kill to be five six. Oh, yeah, and so would my little sister, Becca, but I'm six foot. <laughs> Grandpa Giuliano, he wasn't, he was maybe five six, and I didn't think of him as little. I was taller than him. I'm five seven. Well, he's little Nicky because he's little. But here you go. We have some really good friends, the Messers, who they would love to be five six. And I would never in a million years for fear of death even think about referring to them as little. You know, of all the contradictions and debates we're going to have in this, I did not think we'd be debating whether or not little <laughs> Nicky was little. He was little. <laughs> he like 135 pounds. Uh, is he 5'6", barefoot, or wearing shoes? <laughs> it's, it's not one of those things where he was like, he was a monster, and they called him little Nicky. It's, he here's, was little, so they called him Little Nicky. Here's the reoccurring theme with all these smaller statured people. They all have that Napoleon thing going on. Yeah, yep. Not all, but some, yeah. Most. You know, and it's being six foot, <laughs> I yeah. can't really relate to that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what it is. Like, sometimes I meet a cool little guy, but not often. I don't the even think you between... the family, Billy. You're too tall. Exactly. And then... Uh, He's not six foot. When you get into the Napoleonic complex, which I think is what we're talking about, it's usually you think of a little guy that talks tough and runs his mouth and he gets punked out a lot. Right. right? Little Nicky's different that little Nicky can beat you to death with his fist. He's not, he doesn't need a gun. He, he uses a gun a lot, but he can kick your ass, right? Correct. So don't judge little Nicky till you've walked a mile in his little size seven shoes. You know, he's a, he's his own man. Yeah. Aren't your shoes like an eight and a half? <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, he's six foot. Yep. I am six foot. I'll freaking show you my license. That's uh, always how do, you, how do you not know? My license says I'm 125 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, come on now. People should uh, say they weigh like 400 pounds on their license. That way people will think they're skinny. Actually, what they'll do is tell you to get out of the car and take you downtown and try to figure out who you are. <laughs> is that from experience? Don't lie on your driver's license. <laughs> yeah, Take it from Jason M. Close. You don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, my God. We haven't heard Jake's name in a long time. I, I used his ID once and got called out. And uh, embarrassingly, I was just trying to uh, give blood because they'd pay you for it or something. Plasma. Plasma. Okay, whatever. So I go and this lady's like uh, just asking me some basic questions. I don't know anything, right? Yeah. I can't say anything. I don't know my birthday. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> And so then I'm getting like, uh, I'm getting irritated because I see like homeless people coming in with wearing rags and stuff and they're not getting any beef, right? They're, why am I getting singled out, right? <laughs> 
And uh, at the time I had an earring, so they want to know if it was professionally done or like, do I have tetanus or some disease or something? I'm getting defensive, right? Because of AIDS. So I'm like, listen, man, do you want my blood or not? Right. And this lady looks at me and goes, listen here, Jason M. Close or whoever you is. We don't need your drunk and druggy blood in here. You can take it out the door. <laughs> so they, they refused my blood. But yes. HIV was at the time that you and Jake were running around together. The HIV was running rampant. Not in my blood. But they think you're Jason Close. That's true. And that, then it becomes more plausible. Yes. Yeah. Just kidding, Jay. All right, moving on. Early on as an official member of the Philly mob, little Nikki is given control over the Penguin Club, a strip joint on the corner of North Atlantic and Virginia in Atlantic City. Sharing operational duties with Thomas Tommy Butch Bucci, the Penguin Club serves as a bust-out bar where strippers will handle the male customers by flirting with them and getting them to purchase overpriced bottles of champagne. I, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Why haven't the cops raided this place? <laughs> the business plan is flawless. That is, until the bar's liquor license is suspended for 100 days on shocking charges of soliciting drinks from the customers. I, there, I think there's something else going on there. Baseless accusations, that's what I'm saying. I'm shocked to find that there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> Scarfo's broader introduction to the Philly mob scene does come through a bar, but it's not at the Penguin Club. Great name for a bar here. The Haunted House Bar in Atlantic City will serve as the backdrop to this event. Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio, a made man in the Angelo Bruno family, introduces little Nikki to several members of the Philly mob. According to the Gangland Gazette, de Tulio owned another Philadelphia bar called the Friendly Lounge. Sources claim that this bar was something of a mob school to introduce young members to the ways of a Philly crime family. Scarfo's first murder was committed under the tutelage of Professor Skinny Razor. So Felix Skinny Razor de Tulio was a gangster whose nickname came from his fondness for razors as weapons. He often carried like a thin blade in the pocket of his suit. So the way this goes down, best as I can discern, is that there's this fruit vendor that everyone affectionately calls the Huckster. The Huckster sounds like fun. Oh. Mm -hmm. So the Huckster has his brother that gets sideways with Tulio. I think he was some kind of an informant or cooperator. So they pay a visit to his store. Not that it matters, but there's a snowstorm hitting. So they show up there and the guy lets him in, right? The guy they're beefing with. He just lets him in out of the cold. Big mistake. So they promptly stab him to death. And apparently they cut off his balls and stuff them in his mouth. <laughs> which I feel was unnecessary. That's a little too far. Yeah, but as we'll soon see, Philly liked to use murder to send messages. And uh, this message is, we're a bunch of psychos. Yeah, uh, you castrate a guy? Come on. Uh, and I think this is Come on. Nikki's first murder. This is his first one. So he's, he's learning the ropes from the best. First documented. Yeah, yeah, starting. Where do you, where do you, where do you go from there? Well, let's find out. It's worth noting that uh, Skinny Razor kind of lived a long life, I think. He ends up dying of a heart attack. Not, not bad. Hmm, good for yeah, him. With his balls? Balls intact. Wow. Great. Interesting. Yeah, if you die with your balls on, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> that's one of the checks when you get to the yeah, early games. Yeah. Welcome, Mr. Griffith. I see you've got your balls on. <laughs> Come on in. Scarfo has a long and complicated relationship with his nephew, Phil Leonetti. 
It begins with a seminal moment in 1962 when little Nicky renders Leonetti an accessory to murder in the hit on Dominic Red's Caruso. Eh, you know, just a little, little uncle-nephew bonding right there. How come you never did that with me, uh, Billy? What's that? Make me an accessory to murder. I've always considered you more of a fall guy for murder. <laughs> I think you call Anonymous it. phone call giving me up. Zach's lack of street smarts is going to end him in jail. <laughs> After disrespecting Joseph Joe the Boss Rugnetta, the consigliere of Angelo Bruno, by attempting to extort him and slapping <laughs> him in his own home, Caruso has sealed his fate. Little Nicky is called in to dispose of Caruso, much to his enjoyment. Upon dropping the body off at a burial site in Vineland, New Jersey, Scarfo commandeers a pickup truck to drive back to his parents' Atlantic City apartment and pick up his nephew, Leonetti. Much to nine-year-old Phil's surprise, his uncle is not taking him for ice cream. Nicky confides to the young Leonetti that he has just killed a very bad man and explains that he's using the young boy as a decoy for safe passage. Driving with a child will avoid a suspicious appearance to the police or the generally curious. Dominic Crusoe's wife reports him missing sooner or later, but the body is never found. You know, the problem with mob etiquette is it's basically handed down. You know, there's no, like, book. Right. So right. maybe he didn't know that you can't slap somebody. There should be some kind of mob mismanners that teaches you this. <laughs> In the Bruno regime, the name Nicky Scarfo is quickly becoming a polarizing one. Soon after Angelo Bruno is put in control of the Philly mob by the commission, Scarfo undertakes several reckless and sometimes stupid actions that create friction in the family's leadership structure. Joe Rugnetta, whose honor Scarfo had killed Caruso for, approaches little Nicky about marrying his daughter, only to be met with an insult at her expense. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Enraged, Rugnetta goes to Bruno and requests that Scarfo be killed for this disrespect. As a courtesy to Scarfo's uncle, Nicholas Piccolo, the boss declines. Scarfo then gets mixed up with Alphonse Funzi Marconi and Guarino Mark Marconi, made men in the family, after his pal Salvatore Merlino is discovered to be sleeping with their niece. All kinds of stuff going on here. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. After demanding Merlino's head, Rugnetta arranges a sit-down with Scarfo, Dominic Mickey Diamond DeVito, and the Marconis. Scarfo then vehemently denies his friend's affair with their niece, damaging his standing with Rugnetta even further. So this is a popular version of the account, but we have to mention that in an interview with Patrick Beck David, Leonetti claims that the marriage rejection actually involves Scarfo's friend, Chucky Merlino. And initially, mm. Rugnetta had taken a liking to Scarfo, as they're both from Calabria. Merlino and Scarfo have been friends since they were 16 years old, so naturally Nicky steps in and tries to defend his longtime friend against Renetta. And anyway, that's the nephew's take, who, you know, was there. So no matter how it goes down, at the end of the day, Nicky's uncle, Nicky Buck Piccola, was a capo, so Bruno refuses to sanction the hit, which is just classic Bruno, right? Nonviolence. Yeah. Right. So if you read a lot about it, you get the gist that it was Scarfo who rejected the daughter. I've seen it in right. docs. I've seen it, you know, almost everywhere. But like I said, it his, his nephew has a completely different take on it. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of Ralph Cifaretto vibes here, making fun of someone's uh, wife or daughter <laughs> and when people wanting to kill you for it. What was her name? Connie? 
I just remember he said uh, 90 pound mole on her ass and uh, some Johnny Sack, I think, wanted him dead. Yeah, that was because uh, Polly started. Polly, yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, yep. he mixed it up and started that shit. <laughs> he never got his comeuppance for that. No, no. Oh, jeez. According to some accounts, it doesn't take much longer for Ringetta to want Scarfo dead and buried. In 1963, Scarfo and some associates seat themselves at an empty table in Philadelphia's Oregon Diner. Shortly thereafter, a longshoreman approaches their table and explains that he was sitting there and had only vacated the table temporarily. Scarfo is not one to give up anything that he feels is his, and his size probably emboldened his adversary to teach him a lesson. A physical altercation ensues, and ultimately, Nikki taps into his volatile temper and stabs the longshoreman to death. After serving one year in prison for involuntary manslaughter, Rugnetta is possibly leaning toward having Scarfo killed. However, Rugnetta knows this would alienate the Piccolo crew. Not wanting to piss off Nikki's uncle, Bruno effectively banishes Scarfo to Atlantic City, a place with virtually no worthwhile criminal rackets due to the economic repercussions of World War II. The former gambling haven is used as punishment for those who step out of line in the family. And again, this is a matter of dispute. According to his nephew, Nikki went to Atlantic City of his own volition. Right, he further contends that no one was ever going to kill Nikki, as it would have started a bloodbath like Philly had never seen. He said Nikki was earning good money and had no real infractions of family code, like he hadn't really done anything wrong. So in essence, there's no good reason that they would have ever had him killed. They couldn't justify it. Killing a longshoreman? It was killing a civilian, yeah, but he's not a made guy. I mean, this this is okay. the nephew's con- contention. I'm just giving you all the facts, right? Oh, okay. okay. All part of the legend. So in, in Atlantic City, if you're a fan of Boardwalk Empire and the whole saga of Nucky Thompson, you can get that out of your head. The days of it being a big hub for tourists and all that have passed. Yeah. So it's it's way past its prime. So it's true there wasn't a whole lot of interest in it as a cash town, but Nicky saw the potential for a big score regardless of the reasons for his moving there. Upon his arrival in Atlantic City in 1963, it doesn't take long for Scarfo to carve out criminal activities of his own making. He quickly starts off a bookmaking and loan sharking operation, invests in an adult bookstore owned by Alvin Feldman, then moves into an apartment owned by his mother. Soon, Scarfo is joined by his sister Nancy and his nephew Philip. Scarfo raises a family with his second wife, Domenica, who gives birth to Nicodemo Scarfo Jr. and Mark Scarfo. Nikki's eldest son, Chris, also lives with the family. During an incarceration for contempt, Scarfo learns that Alvin Feldman has been stealing money from him in the adult bookstore arrangement. Shortly after his release, Feldman disappears and is never seen again. So there's some kind of law enforcement surge at the time and virtually everyone is getting subpoenas from the top down in the uh, Philadelphia organization. Nikki and Bruno just plead the fifth and somehow they end up in contempt and they serve the sentence together, which apparently does little to bond the two. There were reports that Nikki tried to use this time to kind of cement his relationship with Bruno and Bruno just doesn't like him. Doesn't work. I think uh, Judge got paid off there. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's that story. I didn't quite get the whole imagery of it, but they said that when Bruno got bailed out, out of oh. jail first, right? <clears throat> that he left 10 paper clips behind for Scarfo, which was a message that he wasn't worth apparently 11 paper clips. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was like, eh, I don't know about that. No. I've never heard anything like that before, but whatever. You know what I mean? It's, it's part of the story. Yep. 
Scarfo continues to run scams out of Atlantic City, but is struggling to stay afloat, not to mention his declining reputation with the Philly mob still hangs over him. While his conviction for contempt proves to the rest of the family that he can stay quiet, there's still work to be done. In 1972, Scarfo tries to vie for the early release of Nicholas Nicky the Blade Virgilio. That's a great name, Nicky the Blade. That is. There's a lot of good nicknames in this. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Scarfo approaches Judge Edwin T. Helfant and gives him $12,000 for the acquittal of his friend. Instead, Helfant takes the money and runs. I want to make this clear. Uh, Helfant didn't give him the sentence, but Helfant was supposed to help bribe an associate judge or something. Uh, and either can't or doesn't. So that's what happens. Nicky somehow befriends a man named Nick the Crow Caramondi, and things begin to pick up. Caramondi is not with the Philly mob but is adept at various crimes like robbery and flim-flam racket. With the backing of Scarfo, who's only a soldier at the time, Crow comes into his own and makes the two of them some decent money. Things begin to look up for Scarfo in 1976 when casino gambling is legalized in Atlantic City. That'll do it. That will do it. Scarfo suddenly finds himself as a pillar of the Philly mob's gambling circuits and a near-indispensable asset. The New Jersey governor anticipates the potential for organized crime in the casinos, and he goes on a public campaign warning the mob to stay out of the casinos. Scarfo is undeterred, but kind of sidesteps things by sinking his teeth into construction, which will be at the heart of Atlantic City's revitalization. Little Nicky quickly makes close friends with local 54 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees International Union. Longtime connections with former local president Frank Gerace and former union business agent Franklin Tino pay off, allowing Scarfo to turn Local 54 into a booming business, ultimately receiving monthly payments of 20 grand from the union itself. So according to Phil in, Scarfo has his apartment modified around this time. So it's actually become three apartments, basically the entire floor. Neither he or his gang is real flashy at this point. They don't buy massive houses, run around with tons of women or throw cash around. Right, they're pretty low-key, and this doesn't change much when they start making serious money. During this time, more trouble is brewing with the Bruno family. The drug trade is booming, but Bruno feels that the strong punitive sentences associated with it make it bad business. He forbids any of his family to take part in this risky venture. He does, however, see clear to allow John Gambino to do business in Philly, as long as Angelo gets his cut. Many members begin to suspect that their boss is allowing Gambino members to get their hands dirty in the drug business in exchange for a take of the profits. Not long after these suspicions arise, Brugnetta dies and is replaced by Antonio Caponegro as consigliere to Bruno. So for the record, uh, Rugnetto passes away from natural causes. Antonio Caponegro, who replaces him, is known affectionately as Tony Bananas. <laughs> hey! His ascension kind of marks the beginning of the end of peace for the Philadelphia organization. In 1978, Nick the Blade Virgilio is released from prison, and it's the perfect opportunity for Nick Scarfo to flex his muscle. During the initial trial of Nick the Blade, a municipal court judge named Edwin Helfant was a Philly mob associate. Helfant wasn't directly connected to the case, but positioned himself to bribe an associate judge in the Virgilio case. Ultimately, Nick the Blade was convicted. Helfant was either unable or unwilling to follow through on his promise and brazenly pocketed the Scarfo bribe money, or at the very least, did not refund the money for services not rendered. 
When Virgilio is released, Scarfo not only gives him permission to slay the judge, but allegedly drives the getaway car in the assassination. As the retired Judge Hell fan is enjoying an evening of a dinner with his wife, a ski mask Virgilio enters the restaurant and shoots the not so I managed to find a article from the New York Times that kind of covered this. So we're going to go now to our stale news correspondent, Anne-Marie Giuliano. Atlantic City murder of ex-judge Helfand investigated for links to organized crime by Donald Jansen, special to the New York Times, February 17, 1978. Atlantic City, February 16th. 20 federal, state, and local law enforcement officials were investigating today the possibility of organized crime involvement in the murder last night of former Judge Edwin H. Helfand. Mr. Helfand was shot to death shortly after 9 p.m. by a man in a black ski mask in the cocktail lounge of the Flamingo Motel here. Richard J. Williams, Atlantic County prosecutor, said that one of several theories on the killing involved organized crime connections. No arrests have been made. Mr. Halfont sat at the same table regularly evenings. He owned the Flamingo with Archie Grenner of Philadelphia. It was formerly owned by Herman Stumpy Orman, an alleged rackets boss here in the 60s. Mr. Halfont, a 50-year-old attorney, was here overnight while on trial in Mercer County Court in Trenton on charges of obstructing justice in a 1968 assault case. He was a municipal judge for nearby Summers Point and Galloway Township for 10 years prior to his indictment in 1973. The murderer entered the bar on Pacific Avenue wearing a full-face black mask, black coat, and black gloves, according to witnesses. He was carrying a snow shovel, apparently as a ruse. He walked to the booth where Mr. Helfant and his wife, Marcy, were sitting with the lounge owner, Leon Strux. He drew a gun and fired four shots into Mr. Halfont's head and chest, then fled. Police found a revolver in a snowbank about two blocks away. So that's the way that went down. I heard one account where he actually walked in and kind of put his arm around him like a hug, squeezed the gun into his chest and boom, 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 boom. Dang. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, Nikki is uh, in the car. You know, he's, he's actually hands-on. He's in the car ready to drive away. There you go. <clears throat> Scarfo, Leonetti, and the Merlino brothers set up a concrete company named Scarf Inc., giving them a way to clean their money from the Atlantic City operations. Scarfo then puts the young Leonetti to work in 1979 when Vincent Falcone, a hitman for the family, begins belittling and mocking them behind their backs. <laughs> Genius. Falcone was also in the contractor rackets with Scarfo. With the expansion of casinos in Atlantic City, construction is expected to be in the $1 billion range. Falcone starts disparaging Scarf Incorporated, claiming their concrete services are doing shoddy work, cutting corners, etc. Falcone is very attuned to the possibility of his murder, but is pretty cautious about where he goes and with whom. To circumvent his suspicions, Scarfo and Leonetti bring along Joe Salerno, a plumber who's almost a civilian. Figuring they won't kill him with a third party present, Salerno gets some ice from the fridge at Scarfo's request and is promptly relieved of his brains by the fledgling nephew who feels good about the murder, certain that it is a good deed for the family. Salerno figures he'd better go along with it, but he's no murderer. He does help tie up the body and is really taken aback by Scarfo's cheerful demeanor during the cleanup. 
Scarfo took pleasure in watching his nephew press his 38 caliber pistol to the back of Falcone's head and the resulting carnage. Not much longer after, Falcone was found in the trunk of a car. So I, I actually found an article on this as well. Salerno's not a mob guy. So the, it was really interesting, the decision to bring him along. Apparently, Scarf was going to try to bring him in, right? And I think he's like a plumber that's kind of tied in with the mob a little bit, some tiny piece of corruption. But he's he's way over his head on this one. And uh, he, he ends up ratting. Okay. The Mafia's Marked Man books. Joe Salerno fingered a mob boss and broke a crime family. He has been running ever since. By Paul Dean, February 22nd, 1990. Times staff writer. Joe Salerno's first enemy was his imagination. The second was Nicky Scarfo. He told me one time he'd like to take a guy and cut his guts out and fry them in a pan, Salerno says. The words are quite flat, but then Salerno has imagined his disembowelment almost daily, and even full horror wears thin after ten years. I felt the knife in my dreams many times. That's stuff you don't forget. Yeah, I think if Nicky ever had a chance to get all to me himself, he would make me die a slow death. He'd probably cut my fingers off or cut my privates off or something. Nicky Scarfo is a devil, a living devil. The devil is in purgatory, in solitary confinement and maximum security five floors below ground at the U.S. Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. Scarfo, 60, former boss of the Philadelphia Mafia, has barely begun his 1988 life sentence for murder, extortion, racketeering, and drug trafficking. His capos and soldiers, 16 mafiosi in all, are in prison. The Scarfo crime family is broken. And it was federal witness Joe Salerno, a 45-year-old union-scale plumber from South Philly and one simple Italian-American against the mob, who did the wrecking. Salerno knows precisely why he turned against his buddies from Atlantic City and Philadelphia construction jobs. This old gang of his who drank together at the My Way bar and ate spaghetti at the Brajoli, an Italian cafe. It was the 1979 murder of a member of this clique. Vincent Falcone. Salerno, unknowingly, unsuspectingly, scotch-poised, said he was standing in the front room at a beachfront apartment in Atlantic City when Philip Leonetti, on orders from Scarfo, put a bullet in Falcone's brain. Falcone's only crime, according to Salerno's subsequent court testimony, was his personal opinion of Scarfo. Weeks earlier, as whiskey talk, Falcone told an acquaintance he thought Scarfo was crazy and should be barred from the cement contracting business. It was a fatal libel. When Vinny first got shot in the back of his head, he turned, Salerno remembers. His body twisted around to see, probably, who hurt him. But when he turned around, he was staring and the expression on his face was helpless. I've been in a lot of fistfights because of where I was born and raised. My nose was broken three times but I'd never seen violence like that in my life. I never stalked a guy or lured a guy in a room and taken a guy's life away. Salerno saw a crossroads. Scarfo, he knew, had manipulated him. This murder was the mob's classic method of recruitment and initiation by incrimination. But when I saw what happened to Falcone, I looked at it this way. If my kids ever found out that I did something like that, that what would they think of me? Could I have lived with it and sung in the shower every morning? No. So Salerno became a state and a federal witness against Scarfo and Leonetti and the family. I took the hard way, the long road. It was the right thing to do. It was what people should do. 
So, uh, let me ask you this. Do you think Salerno's a rat? Well, I know you do. No, I actually don't. No, I don't think so. I think, so, think he's right. I think uh, he's more of a civilian that just uh, trying to do the right thing. Right, right. I, I always think rat means like you're cooperating in order to screw your friend and get a lighter sentence for yourself. Yeah. Doing it for your own gain. Yeah, doing Which, it for your own you gain. You know, somehow is different to me than a guy that just decides, I, I don't know. There's other ways of doing it, like when Luciano and them set up Genovese. Right. Sometimes it's used as a yeah. as a tool of revenge, you know, or you do it just to get the guy out of the way because you don't want to kill him. So there's a, there's a lot of nuances to this. Hey, thanks for the coffee. In turn, that really hit the spot. Can he get me some? Yeah, he didn't get me any. <laughs> well, good God. All right. So these are good times for Scarfo. He's got his hands in the bartender's union and everything else. He's starting to make crazy money. So naturally, it's gaining attention. Now everyone wants a piece of the action, not just the Philly higher-ups, but the New York guys as well. So Bruno sees what's going on, but he's tied to New York. So he just lets it happen. And this is seen as weakness, and so you know what happens then. Figuring that Bruno is unfit to lead the family into the booming Atlantic City future, Antonio Caponegro decides to step in and do everyone a favor. He reaches out to his New York connection, Frank Thierry from the Genovese family. Thierry gives Caponegro the impression that the commission is okay with killing Bruno. So what you need to know here is Caponegro controls a number of operations in Newark. Uh, Thierry also has similar interests in that area, and he figures Caponegro is on his turf. Caponegro appeals that dispute to the commission, who on Bruno's recommendation rules in favor of Caponegro. So it's kind of odd, but when Caponegro approaches Thierry, with a plan to murder Bruno and take over the Philadelphia crime family, Thierry assures Caponegro that it's all good. He returns to Philly with the understanding that he has official New York approval, right? So then he recruits a guy named Alfred Salerno, no relation to the other Salerno, and a couple of uh, Bruno capos, and he plans the assassination. Hmm. Sounds so easy. On March 27, 1980, the boss is heading home from an evening at Cuz's restaurant. He's driven by mob associate John Stanford, who parks along the sidewalk outside of Bruno's residence. Angelo is smoking a cigarette, so the window is down. Undetected, a man glides smoothly out of the shadow and levels a shotgun behind the right ear of the Philly boss. It's unlikely that Bruno even lived to hear the shotgun back in his head. Yeah, you know, so cigarettes can kill you in more ways mm -hmm. than one. Who the fuck? Mm -hmm. yep. Have you uh, seen the picture? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty gruesome. He's like slammed up against the dashboard with a hole in his Yeah, head. it's like there's this big gaping hole in his mouth. Orchestrated by Caponegro, the hit on Bruno does not go unpunished by the higher-ups of the Philly mob community. Caponegro has made a serious mistake. He's killed a boss without approval from the commission. He's summoned to appear before the commission, headed by the Chin, and asked to explain his actions. Confused, Antonio turns to Frank Thierry, who looks at him blankly. Caponegro knows that he has been double-crossed and that he's screwed. The commission rules that he has perpetrated an unsanctioned hit, purely motivated by his own greed. As punishment, he's mercilessly beaten and tortured. Only weeks after the murder of Bruno, Caponegro is found jammed into the trunk of a car with a total of $300 shoved into his dead mouth and anus, a symbol of his own greed that cost him his life. So I guess it was $20 bills. I've heard everywhere from 20 bucks to 300 bucks. 
Um, but and I've also, and I think we covered this in a uh, previous episode with the chin. And they said money was kind of scattered everywhere. But uh, this is getting to be a brutal time. And uh, I don't know what they did with, with the money. Yeah. <laughs> the evidence bag. Somebody's like holding it in the very tips of their fingers. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Double gloved. Anyway, uh, I, I hear he was beaten with hammers, hatchets, and pipes. Oh, my. And then shot 13 times, which, of course, is a baker's dozen. Well, yeah, you gotta gotta do that. At that little hearing thing, everybody was there, like the chins there, Fat Tony's there. I mean, it was a it was a motley crew of authority looking down on him. I don't know why somebody didn't question because somebody had to have suggested, "Hey, shove it up his ass." I don't know why nobody said, "Uh, no." <laughs> you do it. Oh, I'm not. Doesn't want to shove it up his ass. What good does that do? <laughs> Yeah, I think when uh, the chin says shove it up his ass, you shove it up his ass. <laughs> Becoming the third boss of the family in one of the quickest succession cycles ever, Phil the Chicken Man Testa takes the throne and appoints Scarfo as his new consigliere. And uh, of course, he's called the Chicken Man because he had interest in the poultry business, kind of like a Purdue kind of guy. The Chicken Man... It was a severe case of unhealed chicken pox. So that oh, goes into the chicken man, the chi- the name. name yeah, man. yeah. So there you go. Uh, have you seen pictures of the chicken man? No. <laughs> not a handsome man. Again, here I am living in politically correct world. I just would never think of making fun of somebody for that. I bet they didn't call him that to his face. Fuck no. Not to his chicken face. He did <sighs> not. Poor they Bill. I just, he's going to hell. <laughs> I just, I pray, I pray for your soul. So it all came down to the chicken face remark, huh? <laughs> I pray for your six foot soul. Thank you. Yep. By now, Scarfo is making good money, and a roofers union leader named John McCullough wants his due share of the proceeds. Well, John, uh,. Never a good idea to ask what you're owed for Nikki. Never, never a good idea. Nikki isn't in a sharing mood, however, and sends a message for the union leader to step off. McCullough is apparently not intimidated and continues to press for his share. In December of 1980, a flower delivery man arrives at the McCullough residence to deliver several bouquets of poinsettias. After setting the first few plants down in the entryway of the home, the delivery man tells McCullough's wife, there are a few more in the truck. While the disarmed Mrs. McCullough ponders the appropriate Christmas time tip, Mr. McCullough continues with a telephone conversation nearby. The delivery man returns, but brandishing a 22 caliber pistol along with an additional point setup. He pumps six shots into the head and neck of the now former union. The hit was apparently sanctioned by Testa himself. It's now 1981, and the succession in Philly is still a matter of contention. Peter Casella, Testa's underboss, has designs on the top spot. The message from New York apparently has not sunk in. Casella orders that a bomb, packed with roofing nails and 21 sticks of dynamite, be placed under the front porch of the chicken man. Testa is obliterated by the nail bomb. It's discovered that Peter Casella and Capo Frank Narducci Sr. are behind it, leading to Narducci being gunned down in a hail of bullets and Casella fleeing to Florida after his banishment from the mob. It's believed that Casella ordered the hit out of fear of the new RICO laws, 
as Testa was caught up in a loan sharking lawsuit and one of the first to be built on the new laws. The roofing nails were an unsuccessful attempt to pin it on the roofing union. Ah. So according to Phil Leonetti's account, Scarfo's approached at the Testa funeral and Casella wants to see him. So it's obviously a trap, a plan to murder Scarfo. So Scarfo sends word to the Chin and arranges kind of a hostage situation with one of Casella's men as the meeting takes place. So his nephew has that guy in a bar with a gun to his head and he's like, you better hope my uncle comes back. Casella lays whatever BS story he's concocted on Scarfo. And Scarfo basically says, don't worry, I've sent word to New York, they'll figure it out. He's like, what? You know, and uh, it was weird because uh, Leonetti's account was saying that Casella was trying to pin it on McCullough, mm. which is a little confusing because I thought McCullough was dead by now. So the, the order of events is a little bit strange. No. But just it's, it's out there, right? So anyway, when he hears that New York's involved and that they're going to get to the bottom, Casella realizes that killing Scarf was a bad idea. And uh, he doesn't, right? And he kind of lets him go and stuff. But uh, Casella knows like he's, he's in trouble. Yeah. Scarfo is anointed the new Don by New York and promotes Salvatore Merlino to underboss and Frank Monti to consigliere and makes his nephew Crazy Phil a capo. Scarfo's decade-long reign over the Philly mob was marked by significant bloodshed and unprecedented violence, leading him to living the rest of his life in a state of paranoia and even more aggression. Yeah, well, with good reason he's paranoid because Scarfo's leading the family from Atlantic City. He's not a great guy anyway. People don't love him, right? And a lot of the guys in Philly feel like New York just appointed an outsider who has very little influence or knowledge of the Philadelphia family business in general. So his paranoia is a little bit justified. You know, going back to the nail bomb thing, probably didn't seriously consider it, but the, I know the Unabomber was active by then, by 1981. So do you think that was ever brought up in the investigation? I don't think it was. I can tell you something about the explosion, though. It was detonated from a van. Ah. Like a young guy at a remote control. So he was watching and he got it. It blew the bottom half of him completely off. It destroyed the building and the door. I heard that they heard it from the police station. Damn. They heard the explosion. Damn. Yeah, they mm. blew the hell out of him. The clothes were burned off his back. Oh, Jesus. I mean, he was he was destroyed. So when he went to the pearly gates, he was also missing the family jewels. A lot more than that. And they were like, my God, look what that bomb did to your face. <laughs> Billy, Billy, Billy. Oh, jeez. Oh. In 1981, Michael Matthews accepts financial assistance from Scarfo to fund a mayoral campaign in Atlantic City. Essentially, if elected, Matthews will turn a blind eye to mob activities. In 1982, Matthews is elected and makes good on his end of the bargain. The Scarfo crew now seems unstoppable until an old gun charge finally catches up with him. While Scarfo is in prison for gun possession in Texas between 1982 and 1984, longtime capo Harry Riccobaini forms an opposing faction to Scarfo's. Unsatisfied by the new leadership, Riccobaini begins a full-scale war that costs him more than he could ever imagine. His brother Mario ends up becoming an informant for the feds, and Harry himself is handed a life term for first-degree murder. Right, so the Riccobanis were allowed under Bruno to sort of work independently. They didn't have to kick up. That doesn't fly under the Scarfo regime. So this is when all hell breaks loose. Scarfo has a list of over a dozen guys from the Riccobani faction, and his men just go out hunting them. Right, so there's a guy named Harry the Hunchback Riccobani. He's shot at twice but gets away both times. 
So now they're in full-scale war. The first to die is a Scarfo guy named Frank Monty. He shot five times in the head and back. So now it's just the Wild West. Guys are getting gunned down in broad daylight. Scarfo eventually wins the war, largely with the help of the Chicken Man's son, Sal Testa. So everyone in the Rick O'Baney group is either dead, fleeing, or indicted by the end of it. Wow. With the end of the Rick O'Baney wars, a few things of note occur. One is that Mayor Matthews is publicly exposed for his mob ties. The free reign that Scarfo has been enjoying is now coming to an end. The other is that his protege, Sal Testa, is getting the media spotlight. He is being described as an ascending mafioso. Scarfo is livid, not because of the exposure, but because of the notoriety that Testa is receiving. He grows suspicious of Testa's ambitions. Testa is dating Chucky Merlino's daughter and is engaged to be married. Apparently, Testa gets cold feet and calls off the wedding. This is viewed as a colossal showing of disrespect toward Molina and is all the catalyst needed to seal Sal's fate. In 1984, shortly after the sentencing of Rick O'Baney, Scarfo orders the killing of Sal Testa. Sal's ambition and lust for revenge proves to be a major concern for Scarfo. There are reports of over 16 attempts on Testa's life before his friend finally lures him to his death. He's shot twice in the head in the candy store. He's discarded roadside. Astounding how many times candy stores come up in mob stories. <laughs> it is. He dodges assassination attempts 16 times and is ultimately lured in by candy. Well, when I was researching this, there's a headline called the Testa Hit, and it has a picture of Sal. Yeah. It says the rookies rise and fall. But I'll tell you this, he's really rocking that 80s do. He looks like Tony Danza. He's trying to. He doesn't quite get there, but he that 80s, it's like the mullet feathering thing going on. And it, it's classic 80s. Classic. I love it. They actually threw a small party and celebrated when Testa was killed, which is really bizarre <laughs> because they did. And Sal had no reason to be killed. Well, he didn't do anything wrong. And I think they kind of lost the nephew, Leonotti, at this point. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like, this guy was family. There was no reason. And even he starts to see that his uncle's just freaking nuts and out of his mind. And now nobody's safe. When Sal gets it, everybody knows. Like, they're on warning. The boss is crazy. Watch your back. Nobody's safe. Right. But it's the mob. Yeah, but this is like worse than the mob. This is the mob with absolutely no rhyme or reason. It's not organized. It's the, mob. the mob's organized by, you know, by definition. But this is this is beyond that. This isn't just normal life in the mob. This is nuts. This ain't Detroit. No, it's not Detroit by a long shot. It's not New York. It's not anything now. It's just like, you don't want to be a part of this group. Believe me. After the hit on Sal, Scarfo's already shaky reputation becomes almost irreparable, marred by a perceived disloyalty and a lack of respect for other families. In 1985... Little Nicky plots to extort $1 million from Willard Ruse, a commercial developer, and sends his soldier Nicholas Carmondi to carry out the orders. So Scarfo offers a city council approval for a project. I think it's called Penn's Landing. So that was the basic oh, okay. shakedown. He's trying to get it through, and Scarfo does seem to have the means to make it happen. So he's just basically offering me to do a favor, and, uh, you know, Willard's just a big dick about it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you work with someone like that? Well, guys, the plan backfires quickly as Ruse refuses and promptly gets into contact with the FBI. The FBI's case against Scarfo piles up quickly, 
culminating in Caramondi cooperating with them after an undercover agent posed as a representative of Ruse. So I think there's another guy getting extorted around this time named Frankie Flowers Delfonso. Scarfo sends a couple of guys to beat his ass with pipes and bats and nearly kills him. So the streets are just getting more and more violent. Uh, Delfonso doesn't cooperate with law enforcement. He says he got hit by a truck. Well, it probably looked like he did. <laughs> yeah, it was plausible. Frankie Flowers, not a bad name either. This is no. the show of nicknames. It really is. Well, yeah. you know, he's Little Nicky, but I think one of his more appropriate nicknames was Lethal Nicky. He would have liked that. Yeah, totally. In 1986, Caramondi is indicted for his part in the extortion case against Ruse and testifies against Little Nicky in court. In the short time between 1987 and 89, he's convicted three times for conspiracy, racketeering, and first-degree murder, resulting in terms of 14 and 55 years. A life sentence for murder was overturned, however. Uh, and then some tough stuff yes, here for yes. Nikki. During the trial, Scarfo's son Mark attempted suicide on November 1st, 1988. Having been taunted by his classmates for his father's illicit activities, 17-year-old Mark had had enough and hanged himself in his father's concrete supply office. He's discovered by his mother, who then calls paramedics. The medical team resuscitates Mark, who then falls into a coma for the rest of his short life. He dies in April 2014. So awful. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nikki's not a good dude. Whoever you are, that's uh, it's tough. It wasn't Mark's fault, though, that his father... Yeah, and that's that's what the nephew's contention is. That it, and it wasn't the bullying of classmates. They said that Nikki mm, disparaged yeah. him all the time. Like, he played sports and basically called him a punk for playing sports. Like, what are you doing? You're a joke. You know, he should... Because he thought he should be more like Nikki. Yeah. And just disparaged him all the time. And I think... I, I'm paraphrasing here, but at, at the end of the note, he actually signed it like, you're a piece of shit, son. Mark. That's horrible. Right. And of course, Nikki's blaming it on everybody but himself. He's blaming it on the nephew's mom and anybody else he can point a finger at. Next on Scarfo's list of paranoid delusion is none other than Chucky Merlino. Merlino is now in the habit of getting soused and missing meetings. Although he's a childhood friend of Scarfo's, he's seen as a disrespectful disloyalist who has the desire and potentially the crew to cause trouble. Molino is ultimately spared, but is demoted. He ends up in jail for a bribery charge. Well, I mean, they were friends since they were 16, so I don't know how he got off the hook, but he did. And of course, Merlino had absolutely no intention of betraying his friend. It's, this is all just paranoia. Right, yeah. Caramondi ends up on the receiving end of an extortion conviction. Knowing the temperament of his old boss, he figures he's got a target on his back and decides to testify against the paranoid and disloyal Scarfo. His testimony is all that is needed to seal the fate of his former boss. On top of his extortion conviction, Scarfo is later charged and convicted of nine murders, including Judge Helfant, Vince Falcone, and Sal Testa. Scarfo begins serving a sentence at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, although he's later moved to the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, dying of natural causes on January 13th, 2017 at the age of 87. This concludes the legend of Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo. A great story. Yeah. 
So at the end, if you do anything wrong and, and you're on the hit list, you know what I mean? Like Nikki's like, hey, Zach, uh, notice your shoes untied. <laughs> Got some loose ends that makes me wonder what other kind of loose ends you might be leaving around. <laughs> but you know, when I read this stuff, I, I think of Bill. What? Just the short fuse part. Just the short. I'm six foot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you remind me of the chicken man. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could be worse. The chicken man. Anyway, let's say goodbye. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. All right, Josh, you got anything for us? There is no way you're six foot. <laughs> I'm totally six foot. <laughs> All right, let's say goodnight. Good night. Good night. God bless. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.